Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. We've been talking about how do we draw near to God and how do we get closer to Him and how do we take Him up on His offer that if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. And what does that look like to draw near? How do we do it? We've been talking these last weeks about tools and strategies that we can implement in our lives that actually help us walk closer with the living God. We believe that God is not just a concept or a pattern or principles, but he's a person to be known. He's a person to do life with. And he's not just the author of life, but he wants to be in relationship specifically with us. And so we've been asking the question, how do we draw near to God? And today, uh, we're going to move beyond some of the personal things and practices that we do. We talked about confession. We talked about consecration. We talked about time and obedience. Now I want to talk about what this has to do with unity and this idea of drawing closer to God together. I want to look at Psalm 133. Like I said, I'm going to be quick. We're going to look at a principle and two pictures based on Psalm 133. And we're going to just kind of unpack this one picture from Psalm 133 to get together today. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Got a bat in here or something here to squeak? Anybody hear the squeak? No, is it just me? Brothers and sisters who dwell in unity, the Lord commands his blessing. Here's the big idea today I want to unpack. If we want to draw near to God and experience his presence and his goodness and his fullness in our lives, we have to draw near to him together. That in actuality, it's not just about a personal pursuit, but when we draw near to God, we can only get so close by ourselves. And there's this special anointing and blessing and abundance of his presence as we draw near to him together. Today in our services, we've celebrated diversity and unity in diversity. And we aren't doing it because we're trying to virtue signal in a time where that's a virtuous thing to celebrate diversity. We're not doing it because it's nice or neat. We're doing it because it's necessary. Unity, according to the scripture, is necessary if we are going to draw near to God. You can't draw near to God alone. And if you take the scripture seriously, you will come to see this. God has designed his goodness, his glory, his life to be expressed through community. That in a very real sense, you are limited in your walk with God if you are walking alone. That we actually are designed to operate together and we will only experience the goodness and pleasure of God together. I love that it says, how good and pleasant is it when the brothers, brothers and sisters, it says in some translation, And it gives this family language to help us wrap our heads around what God is like. Now, those of you who are dads in the room or moms in the room, you can maybe begin to understand this principle. Like, I'll I'll give an example. This past week, uh, I believe it was Tuesday, I picked up Alex, our youngest, who's eight, 
from daycare, and we headed home about an hour early. I'd, got, I'd finished up what I wanted to do, and we headed home, and I got there. My wife was working at the hospital. She's a nurse, for those of you who don't know. And so it was like dad alone night, you know? So, so we're talking delicio pizza and iPads. No, it's just... Uh, no, but I got home and the kids, the, the kids wanted to, to swim. We have a little above ground pool. And so they wanted to swim. And I said, go ahead and get swim. And within like five minutes, these little turds were just fighting each other like crazy. <laughs> Anybody, any moms and dads know, like there's just like something in the air and they just want to fight each other. And I did what every good authoritative guiding father would do in that moment. I went to the garage and I put on my headphones. And then I put on the noise-canceling, lawn-mowing headphones. And fired up the lawnmower. And proceeded to mow the lawn that didn't need to be mowed for the next hour. <laughs> and I didn't know what was going to happen to them. I hoped that at least two out of three of them made it out alive. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I just did not want to be near them if they were going to be like that to each other. Is that not a real fact? Is that not a real thing, moms and dads? What happens when the brothers and sisters dwell in discord? It repels the parent, or at very least angers them. Am I right? And there is a correlation there. Again, God created us in his image, and he very much treats us. Over and over again, the Bible reveals God as a father. And this principle is loud and clear for us that if we want to experience the good grace of God and the good pleasure of God, we have to learn to dwell in unity. And to the degree that we can dwell in one accord and in unity, and we can bring our diversity together and not just get along, but actually promote one another and propel one another, it unlocks the favor of the Father. This is a simple and yet profound fact that the Bible speaks of over and over again. If you're a note taker, again, I have one principle, a concept, this is it, and I'll give you two pictures based on Psalm 133. But the concept is this, if you want to experience the good pleasure of God, you've got to learn how to dwell in unity in the brother and sisterhood of Christ. To the degree that we learn to do that will be the degree that we experience the life and pleasure and presence of the Father. It's very similar to how our own households are. That when we learn to operate in unity, it releases and draws the presence and power of God. And really, I want to just give you a heads up. I want to give you a little quick Bible study here. This is actually about divine design. I don't want to over or undersell how important it is that we live in unity. This is not just something that's nice or novel. It's actually necessity that God has designed you and I to experience him together. And that there is a limitation on our experience and our life with God if we do it alone. Let me give you a quick just Bible study. Uh, the Bible at a, glance, uh, at a glance, the gospel, and what unity has to do with it. Here's just three ideas you need to understand when it comes to unity and diversity. The first is this, that God designed unity to be a mechanism through which his life flows. If we had time and we did the deep dive and we looked at Genesis 1 and chapter 2, you would see that God made everything beautiful. He said it's all good. And specifically, there was a lot of diversity even there in the Genesis account. Now, it doesn't give us every, it doesn't list every animal or plant. It just says there's a multitude and a variety 
And yet, within that variety and diversity, God designed interdependence. That human beings need each other. That the the world was designed to need human beings to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. God designed the whole world to flourish through interdependence. And you can still see shades of that even in a fallen world, that there are these symbiotic relationships. How many of you know, like when you, when you mess with nature and you pull one thing out, it can send everything into, out of balance? You ever see the study when they, when they took the wolves out of Yellowstone National Park? Everything sort of started to, everything's connected to each other. And there's not one thing that doesn't have consequences when you remove it from a system. And God made the whole universe this diverse, complex system that is designed to work in interdependence and harmony. Are we tracking He's even done that in humanity, that although there are male and female, those are the two kind of categories of human beings, there are no two human beings exactly alike, that we have diversity all through the human race. There's only one race, the human race, but there are many tribes, tongues, people, and nations. And God has designed humanity to work interdependently. And so the flow of God's life, hang with me, is designed to work through this symbiotic, harmonic, interdependent relationship. Then you flip to Genesis chapter 3, and what happens? Genesis 3 is where sin enters the world. It is the Bible's explanation to why there is so much trouble and heartache and hardship and sickness and disease and death. It's not because God is angry. It's because the world has fallen and broken because we have fractured our relationship with God. Put very simply, what Genesis 3 is trying to tell us is, in Genesis chapter 2, there was a divine order that the life of God flowed into human beings and into the earth, and it all worked in beautiful harmony. But when human beings decided to worship the creation over the creator, it inverted the divine design of everything. And it broke the flow of God's life in the universe. One of the ways you can understand sin is not just something bad that we do. Sin is a failure of design. It's any time we aren't locked in alignment with the flow of God's life. And so sin enters the world and we start to see this great inversion where now human beings are disconnected from God. And what's the result of being disconnected from God? Death. Death, ultimately death. We can't sustain life. But not just death, you see division happen. Immediately in Genesis 3, go look at it. This is, this is not how to be a good dad on Father's Day. God comes and confronts Adam and Eve. And what does Adam say to God? This woman that you put here did this. It's right there, blame shifting. And you flip to Genesis chapter 4 and you see the compound effect of sin yields greater division and destruction in humanity. You see Cain kills Abel. And then you see the generations that ensue from Cain. You start to see tribalism and factions and warfare. And it keeps going down this black hole of human decay and division. And this is what the scripture tries to show us. Because of the reality of sin, it brings division. And we are no longer enabled to experience the life of God. And so it, sin puts you, hear, hear me like this. Sin puts you at odds with God and at odds with others. What it does, ultimately, is it turns yourself inward, and it cuts you off from the flow of God's life, 
and from being able to be a channel of life into other people. But Jesus came, so number three, so it was destroyed by sin, but Jesus came and reestablished the right order of everything. Can I get an amen? Jesus, the reason he came, it's not just to forgive you of your sins and say that I have washed your sins away. It's bigger than that. He has restored the right order of all creation. He has reconciled us to God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that that we, we have been reconciled to God. We've been made right with God through Jesus. And as we come to Jesus, hang on, I'm almost done. You just gotta get this in your head. As we come to Jesus, we are made alive in him. And we are given life now and forever. And so what has happened in Jesus is he comes and he resets what sin destroyed. Jesus has reconciled all things to God and those who are found in him are restored to the original design for human flourishing, experiencing the goodness of God together. Now, if I have more time, I'd take you to 1 Peter chapter 2. It talks about how we are like living stones being brought together as the, as the temple of the living God. It says in 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, the living stone, you are being built together. You are, it says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So what does that mean? It means that as we become Christians, we are brought back together, made one in Christ, made one in God. Now, what is this getting at? Well, it's getting at the heart of the gospel. Did you know that the heart of the gospel is not just to reconcile us back to God, it's to reconcile us back together. I love that the cross has a vertical plane and a horizontal plane. And it's this picture of being made right with God and being made right with each other in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel is getting at. Look, look what it says. Paul says it in Galatians like this. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's an incredible statement because there's a lot of diversity in that word all, isn't there? Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every age group, every economic bracket, every type of history, we are all, the key word here is all, sons through faith. We're made sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's our new identity. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What's he saying? Is he saying that there's no more tribes? There's no more backgrounds or nationalities? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying our identity in Christ now supersedes our individuality and nationality. So fundamentally, we are brought together. Hang with me. This is important. We are brought together by the bond of Christ. And here's the point. The bond of Christ is the only bond strong enough to hold human beings together. Truly. The bond of Christ is the only bond strong enough to hold you and I together. Inevitably, human beings, despite our best efforts, will end up divided and unto destruction. There is this Babel-like principle. Remember Babel in Genesis 11? Yes? Wes, are you with me? Halifax? The story of Babel, that human beings, that even in our best efforts to coordinate and collaborate and create community will ultimately end up in more division and factions and destruction. It's inevitable. 
And we have yet to this point seen an example of human beings who have cracked the code and figured out how to create bonds together that help human beings flourish unto utopia. Every human system, every human society to this date today has been destroyed, has ended in destruction. Am I wrong? Every empire has what? Every single one. Even our efforts at community end up in more factions and fractions. Have you noticed, when I was a kid, it was the L and the G. And then when I was a young adult, it was the LGBT. And now it's the LGBTQIA2 plus alphabet. What, what am I getting at? I'm not poking fun here. I'm saying human community always ends up in more factions and fractions. Because there is not a bond strong enough to help us get over ourselves for the benefit of someone else. The gospel of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, is the only thing that deals with the problem of the heart. At the end of the day, human beings are predisposed to be selfish. But God designed the flow of life to come from him through us to others. And unless there is a work of grace in our hearts, it will always inevitably just be a human empire that is built. And what happens in empires? Some people get oppressed. Some people get extorted. Some people get taken advantage of. Other people sit on heaps of wealth, which if you believe the Bible to be true, is actually more destructive than being poor. It, in, it inevitably ends in destruction. So the gospel of grace ultimately is this idea of being restored back into right relationship with God. So here's three ideas, really quick. Three conclusions regarding unity. The first is this, Christianity is a we thing, not a me thing. Let me say it again for the people in the back. Christianity is a we thing, not a me thing. What has happened in Western society particularly, and we need to, we need to hear this and hear it again, Western Christianity has privatized your faith. And it has made you believe a lie that it is about me and my personal Jesus. That is not biblical Christianity. Did you notice when we prayed the Lord's Prayer today, it did not say, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give me today my daily bread. Forgive me my trespasses. It doesn't say that, does it? When Jesus taught us to pray, he prayed, our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. It is a communal faith designed to be experienced together. You can only experience God ultimately together. And this is why Jesus prayed. John 17, Jesus prayed this. You think when Jesus prays out loud for John the Apostle to record it, you'd think this is pretty important stuff, right? And so here's on the, on the last night before he's betrayed and goes to the cross, he prays this prayer, and there's John taking quick note of it. And G, you know what Jesus says? Let them be one as we are one. And that by their love for each other and their oneness, the world will know that they're mine. This is fundamental to God's design for humanity. And this is what you see when you see the gospel break out, do you remember Acts chapter 2? The day of Pentecost, it says, Jesus told him, wait in Jerusalem. Do not leave till you receive the gift of power. My father promised. And when you do, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And then it tells us on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were there in one accord and on their unity, the grace and power and literal presence of God fell. And from there, what happened next? You see this reset. Here's a people of God restored into right relationship with God. And what they did was not hoard it unto themselves. Immediately, it says, they went out into the streets and God enabled them to tell the good news to people in whom their language wasn't even their native tongue. So you see right now in Acts chapter 2, God enabling the people of God to reach out with the good news of God's grace to all people. God's design was always diversity being made one in himself. Are we tracking? This is so important. So Christianity is a we thing, not a me thing. It was always about a people, not you particularly as an individual. Yes, we have our own relationship with God, and, we, and that's, that's something we need to steward. But you better believe that ultimately this is about being part of a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. Number two, Christian unity is radically different than secular community. Christian unity is founded on and fueled by Jesus, bringing us all together with the strongest bond in the universe, the love, grace, and redemption of Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. This is very different. Like the best expressions of secular community, which again, do not fall for the secular myth that says, if we can all just imagine, like John Lennon says, and we get rid of religion, and we imagine all the people. You know that one? <laughs> Living. Anyway, it's a lie. There's, there's never been a time when human beings could get it together enough to actually create heaven. Heaven is something that flows down from God, and we have got to be in right order with God in order to receive his presence. Does that make sense? Christianity, Christian unity is radically different than secular community. Secular community, even on its best day, inevitably fails. It inevitably fails. Number three, the more we enjoy and appreciate Jesus, the more we will enjoy and appreciate diversity. The generations and the nations are a gift. What happens when we get reconciled back to God through Christ is now what divided us and used to be barriers to overcome become blessings that we can leverage. Let me say that again. The things that used to divide us when we were these solo autonomous beings now become things because we are all united in Christ become things that blast the glory of God and actually push the kingdom forward. Our diversity becomes something beautiful and something powerful because we are made one in Christ. Let me say that again. Our diversity becomes something beautiful and powerful because we are in Christ. Ultimately, God never intended to get rid of the generations or the nations. It's something he always wanted to redeem. This is why. This is very important. Revelation chapter 21. Is this too much Bible study for you on a Sunday morning? I hope not. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that God will be glorified through the nations forever and ever and ever. That, that even in, in glory, we're going to celebrate diversity. Look, look what it says. It tells us of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Then it tells us by its light, talking about the, 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 the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine. For the glory of God gives it its light and its lamp is the lamb, Jesus. And by its light will the nations walk, there it is, the nations, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the distinction of the nations. That God can't wait forever and ever to celebrate what's incredible about Canadians and to celebrate what's incredible about Ukrainians and Nigerians and, and, and people from China all over the world. He can't, that we're going to celebrate that forever and ever and ever. We're going to celebrate God in our diversity forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's incredible, y'all. Amen. This is not just some like nice, politically correct thing that we, I have no appetite. In fact, I'm so against the political correctness that I almost don't want to preach about this for fear of you thinking that I've got some political agenda. This is, this is our thing, y'all. Unity belongs to the church. Community and diversity belongs to God. He designed it, and we have got to actually demonstrate what it looks like. They will bring into, they will bring into the new heaven and the earth glory and the honor of the nations. What a picture. What a picture. So the takeaway is unity is God's design for human flourishing. No big deal. So, so let that register you for a minute, even as an individual, to the degree that you're able to not just coexist with others, but love others even as you, as you love God, is the degree that you will experience the life of God. And that's the picture that the rest of the psalm paints. Let's look at it really quick. It goes on. It says, so behold how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell in unity. Verse 2. Here's what it's like. Here's the first picture he paints. The psalmist. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, this is one of those Bible pictures that I have a hard time with. I have a beard, and I think that would feel really gross. But this is actually a beautiful picture if you get into what it's actually talking about. Oil in the Old Testament was not just a picture of the presence of God. We, we see that picture all through the Scripture, that oil represents the Holy Spirit, the seal of the Spirit. But more than that, oil represents divine appointment, kingship, distinction. In, in, in other words, when you see someone that was anointed with oil in the Old Testament, that was basically God saying, chosen. I've chose you. I've set you apart I've given you my glory. My name rests on you. That's what the oil represents. So the oil is flowing down, running down. What's the psalmist getting at? It's, it's a picture. He doesn't want you to focus on the beard. He wants you to focus on the oil. There's so much oil. It's not just a little dab on the head of the priest. It's an outpouring of oil in such a way that his whole person is covered that it's running down over his head, down his beard, down his garments. He's just soaked in the oil of anointing. And so what's this getting at? It's saying there is an anointing that comes, that flows down, a blessing of God that only comes as we dwell in unity. There is something special. Some of you could feel it in our gathering today as we celebrated the nations and we, we were taught, we were celebrating. We let, we let different people from around the world pray the Lord's Prayer in different languages. Could you feel God's pleasure on that? This is what it's talking about. Particularly, I love that he, he highlights Aaron. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. The high priest was someone who God gave access to go where nobody else could go. 
So what a picture that's telling us. That when we dwell in unity, we have access to heavenly, holy places that we can't go by ourselves. Let that register. If you want to go deeper with God, grab somebody and bring them with you. That's what this is saying. That, that truly, to go into the most holy place as a priest, anointed, we, dwell, we have to dwell in unity. This is what I felt the Spirit say to me more than anything as I was preparing this message is that I, I want to invite you into hidden and holy and deeper places as a, as a church, but you're not going to do it as a few thousand individuals. You know, we have several thousand people that call King's Church home. If we're going to get into the holy place as a church, it's going to be because we become one. There is a special access that comes, a special anointing that comes when we dwell in unity. I have seen it in my own life. All of the most powerful encounters I've ever had with God have happened with other people. Without question. Yes, I have had God speak some things into my heart alone. Just they're, they're treasures. And God, will, God loves to get you alone too. Don't hear me say that. But his design, when he, when he wants to move in power, I, every single mountaintop, glory, most holy place experience of my life has happened with other people in community. Every single one. And this is why God's anointing is so fresh and so abundant and so powerful. Anytime we, as believers, seek unity and collaboration for his name's sake. Every single time. Like just this past week, Pastor Dan and I, we gathered with some of the pastors from the KV region here. And we just, just got together to pray. We had no agenda other than like, hey, the church is one. We got to get, we got to take these flags down. We got to see, look, let's, I want King's Church to be a church that's working towards mergers. Like, we, like that God is unifying the church. And so we, we got together and we prayed and you could just sense the pleasure of God. Ah, here's four pastors of their churches who see that my church is bigger than their own unique thing. And God's hands there. This is why things like Love Atlantic, there's just such a holy anointing that rests when the people of God get over themselves and work and love Jesus together. This is why one con is just like this hot ball of fire. Why? Because you have all these denominations saying, you know what's more important than the Baptists or the Wesleyans or King's Church or the Pentecostals getting credit for having a great youth rally? That these kids come to know Jesus better. And the anointing of God that rests on unity, it, it is unparalleled. This is why Jesus, he, like, he, 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 we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus, oh, where is it? Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, I guess I don't have it. This is my second point, actually. It's the point of, uh, we'll experience the, the anointing, the presence and power of God. Here it is. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What's a peacemaker? It's a person who takes unity upon themselves. says, I will pay a price to get close even if that means working through difficulty and working through challenges and working through baggage, I will pay the price to make peace. And Jesus says there's special blessing on the peacemakers. There is a fatherly pleasure over us as we seek unity. How incredible is that? So, so here's a pro tip. If you want God to unleash anointing in your life, seek the benefit and welfare of others. 
and you will, you will experience it. So if you want, if you want uh, your marriage to flourish, here, this will hit home. How many of you know when you get in a marriage fight, there's always that, well, who's going to move first? Right? Was that just mine? Don't judge me. You get, you, get, you get stalemated, right? And you're like, well, someone should apologize. And it's not going to be me. Right? That's just my... God says, I will actually bless the one who was willing to go first and die first. And lay down your life. Say, I'm sorry. Who's willing to just keep trying to make peace. Keep forgiving. Keep offering mercy. Keep offering encouragement. Same with your family. Same in your, in, with your coworkers. If you, if you take the role in your company as a peacemaker, I don't know if your company is going to do well, but you will. God will bless you and you will walk in his favor. He just favors the ones who walk as peacemakers. Last thought. I'm almost done. I told you I'd be quick. It's been quick. I felt like, <laughs> I only have two pages of notes. I usually have four. Seriously, this is my last point. Everyone's like, oh, wow, he really is going to be quick. Last, last picture. It's not just like the anointing oil. It's like the dew of Hermon. Who is Hermon? Hermon. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, who or what is Hermon? Hermon is a mountain in Israel. Let me give you my point. My point is this. When we, when we dwell in unity, we'll experience the fresh life of the kingdom, rivers of life. What is Hermon? Hermon is a mountain in northern Israel. You can't really see it there on camera very well, but Mount Hermon is 7,000 feet above sea level and it is the only mountain in all of Israel that has snow on it. So if you want to ski in Israel, there's one place to do it. It's Mount Hermon. They actually do have a ski resort there for those of you who want to go. You want to go on a ski trip you never thought you'd go on, go to Israel. So... Uh, but what's unique about Mount Hermon, and this, this just hit me like a ton of bricks when we were there. We were literally driving by out the window, and it's in northern Israel. It's surrounded by Galilee, where Jesus is from, and then it's to the south. And to the east is uh, Jordan, to the northeast is Syria, and over here is Lebanon. And it's surrounded by arid desert plain. And Mount Hermon, though, because it has snow-capped hills, the runoff from the hills flows as streams down into this valley. And this whole area of northern Israel, not just is the supply of fresh water into the nation, but it's actually the number one, like the only real area where there's farming. It's lush. It's the only place in the whole nation that's got consistent moisture. And it's not because of rainfall, it's because of runoff. And so the runoff from Mount Hermon comes down. And so all around here as we drove up, there's like date fields and banana fields. And like just there's fruit everywhere, palm trees. It is lush. It is a jungle there. It's incredible. And what makes it extra stark is when you see how arid the surrounding areas. I mean, it's dead. It is just dust and dirt and rocks. And then you come into this area near Mount Hermon and it's like 
just, it's an oasis. And what is the psalmist getting at? He's saying when we dwell in unity, there, are, there is the flow, the streams of life that flows down into even arid places that brings new and perpetual life. The amazing thing and why Herman is such a treasure is because it's the one place in the whole nation that you can consistently count on the flow of water. And this is what the psalmist is getting at. That when we dwell in unity, life flows down and produces abundance. That God commands his blessing as we grow in interdependence, dependence on God and dependence on each other. That's where the life is. Uh, Pastor Kevin Myers, who preached at um, uh, XY Conference, he said this, and I'd never thought of this before, and I'd love to take credit for it. It's not mine. He said it. He says, when you were born as a child, like physiologically, the goal is to go from being dependent to independent, Correct. Like when you had a baby, there's, see, there's a baby right there being held. You hold the baby, you feed the baby, you change the baby, you clothe the baby, you bath the baby, and the older the baby gets, the more independent they become. Actually, I was walking out of Canadian Tire the other day, and there was this dad trying to wrangle four kids, and he's like yelling their names and trying to coordinate them. And I walked by with my two teenagers, and I go, gets easier, bro. And, uh, <laughs> and, we, and he's like, I hope so. And, you know, like just wrangling them, Right? It's because to, to grow up is growing in independence, correct? Spiritually, it's the inverse. When you were born again, you go from being an independent to increasingly dependent. That you, you, the goal and the way that life flows and abundance flows in your life is you grow more and more dependent on God and more and more dependent on others. And this is God's design for human flourishing. It's, I love how Adam said it a couple weeks ago. It's challenging, but it's not complicated. As we seek the glory of God and the glory of others, as we live in the flow of his grace and life and we become vessels and channels for the grace and life of God unto others, we will flourish. We are like the, the dew of Mount Hermon giving life to the whole land. And that's the picture the scripture gives us. Jesus said it like this. Look, the whole thing, all of the Old Testament, he said, can be wrapped up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole scripture is summarized. You want... You want the Coles notes that will help you pass the test? Here it is. Get over yourself. Crucify the flesh. Love God and love people and you will live. Just stand to your feet. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for this truth. We confess that it's hard for us. Lord, we confess that we uh, often love the darkness. We often can be selfish. We often put ourselves first before you and before other people. And we ask God today, in your likeness, Father, would you help us live as people who are aligned and obedient as sons and daughters to you and of you and who are brothers and sisters 
who seek the welfare of each other, who glory in our differences, who aren't offended or challenged or made insecure by our differences, but God, we actually lock in and lock arms and leverage our diversity for your glory and for our good. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you for your word today. Father, I pray, hear, hear, hear my prayer today, God, as pastor over King's Church, God. I pray that we would be one even as you are one. We say amen to your prayer, O oh God. And we say we believe that that would be the best thing for us and for the whole world that you've planted us in and that your blessing and rivers of life will flow through us as we are one, even as you are one. Give us grace to be peacemakers this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen, amen. amen.